Welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is David Binger. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, David is CTO at Forced Physics, uh, where your team has developed a, an advanced technology for cooling data center computers. Um, and uh, David, uh, I, you're not an engineer, but you are a, a computer scientist by degree. Is that accurate? That's right. Uh, I was going to tell you that. Yeah. So not an engineer. Uh, um, I've done some software development, uh, but, you know, um, technically speaking, I'm not an engineer. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. The, the show is for uh, engineering and engineer adjacent roles. So okay. if you really work with engineers, you definitely qualify. You're, you're, <laughs> I'm you're adjacent. Okay. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, David, your career was started, I, I think, in academics. You were uh, a professor. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I, uh, uh, My wife and I went to graduate school at the University of Illinois. And uh, when we left there, we both went into academics and uh, college teaching. So, David, what prompted you to move from a career in academics into industry? Um, well, I was uh, enjoying my academic career at a small college in Kentucky called Center College. Um, and I was lucky enough to be uh, granted some time on a sabbatical leave. And uh, I decided during that time to go um, try out some professional software development. And at the time I was particularly interested in the Python programming language. So I looked on the Python job board and uh, sent out a, a few uh, uh, emails to people about, about job openings. And I um, was fortunate to get hired at uh, the Corporation for National Research Initiatives in Reston, Virginia, which was the uh, the home base for the Python development team at the time. Um, and as it turned out, uh, there I was working with a team of very gifted uh, programmers, and uh, and and it was a very exciting work. We were developing the ideas of uh, extreme programming uh, in, within the team and uh, working on um, really high creativity um, um, stuff. And, um, and I really liked it. So uh, we uh, decided to, uh, to move there and just stay permanently uh, from what was supposed to be just a one year gig. What, what do you think it was about that environment that enticed you? Was it, um, I don't know, more, more fast-paced or just more interesting work? Well, it was more fast-paced for sure. Um, the, the Washington, D.C. area, is, uh, this is around uh, 2001, uh, was, uh, you know, the economy was very vibrant and thrilling there and uh, the opportunities for uh, my family were excellent, and the work was um, was just unbelievably fun. 
um, we were uh, so we were really uh, doing uh, a lot of interesting work. It was at a project called the MEMS Exchange, which uh, MEMS uh, for your listeners is uh, means microelectromechanical systems. So it's the uh, the micro machines um, that are made using uh, the processes that are normally used for making um, uh, integrated circuits. And uh, what the MEMS exchange did was uh, did prototyping services for inventors who had um, ideas for things that they would wanted to make on a very small scale. Um, some examples of MEMS project uh, products are uh, the, a big one is uh, is the microphones, the tiny little microphone elements that are in our cell phones or our computers that we're using right now are MEMS devices. And uh, another big one is accelerometers, um, which at that time, the big application was in uh, airbags in uh, cars for crash detection. Um, but now, of course, there, there are accelerometers in all of our devices. But the work at the MEMS Exchange was just really technically and scientifically interesting um, and, and fun. Can you give us a sense for the, the scale of these MEMS applications? I mean, could you, can you see these things with the naked eye or are these things that have to be visualized under microscopy? Well, uh, we did have an electron microscope at the MEMS Exchange so that the, the the real engineers, the MEMS engineers, could uh, could look at those devices. The scale of the things that were manufactured there were on the nanometer to uh, micrometer scale. Wow. So, so they were small, and they're made on uh, typically on silicon substrates, just like um, ordinary chips. What's What's the manufacturing process for for a MEMS application? Is it some kind of chemical etching? Mm, yeah, that's one of the things, and that was one of the reasons that the MEMS exchange was established. As the uh, there's a wide range of processes that you can utilize in constructing MEMS devices, um, ranging from uh, there's. There's a class, of, a category of things that are called depositions, where you're adding a layer of material to a chip. You might, you know, add a layer of uh, some number of microns of, of gold, for instance, onto the top of the chip. Um, sometimes you're putting down uh, uh, photoresist, um, which is then ex is exposed uh, through a patterned exposure. Um, so that uh, you can create patterns on the chip that can be etched um, then as a, as a way of removing material through the patterns. So it's sort of a combination of uh, chemistry and geometry and, uh, and, the, and the electrical properties are really important too. And that's, you know, those are the part, parts that make uh, things like accelerometers work. So they, they, for example, uh, through the fabrication process, you would you might um, create a, a very tiny little beam of uh, of solid material, 
such that when it's subjected to some sort of a g-force in one direction or the other, it deflects the beam a little bit, and that uh, causes some electrical uh, condition, some measurable measurable change in capacitance or or some other property that you know it gives, makes the sensor work. Um, and were you were you doing software for this, or were you mm -hmm. involved? In in some of this electromechanical design as well? Uh, not much in the design, although I did end up doing, uh, helping a little bit on the, on the, the forced physics part of it. Um, but my job was software. Uh, so we had a, um, what the MIMS exchange did is we had a, we called it the world's first distributed fabrication network for MIMS prototypes. And, uh, we the silicon wafers that the devices were built on were were shipped around by FedEx to um, laboratories all over the country and university laboratories and commercial and uh, and government laboratories and where the different process specialties were housed. Um, there was sort of an economics problem that the uh, the machines that do you know. For example, there might be a certain photolithography machine um, available in a lab at some university, uh, and uh, we would basically tap into their excess capacity uh, for those machines. And we would, uh, so the software uh, really was involved in managing that, um, managing all the resources and the flows and the FedEx uh, things and mm. the contracts that um, uh, you know that caused all that to happen. So almost we, like a, a crowdsourced network back before that term existed. I, the way we thought about it was is we were sort of like Amazon for this very special uh, class of things that uh, were extremely complicated because uh, we were. Uh, there are so many parameters uh, that go into a MEMS device. You can imagine you have mask layouts and you have measurements that are made all along the process and all that has to be tracked. And, uh, and even the vocabulary for, um, for this, for the sequence of processes that are applied to a chip. Um, we essentially, uh, developed that vocabulary and the object structures and a complete um, object database uh, and actually the, the, the database itself um, was all made in-house um, by our team. Well, uh, David, you, you share that you're not an engineer, but using terms like sequence of processes you better be careful you're you might become an honorary <laughs> engineer with language like that <laughs> we we all execute sequences of processes <laughs> <laughs> yes we do um so it was at cnri that you met scott davis who is the ceo of forced physics is that is that right yes that's right uh scott uh came in around uh 2005 uh, from Southern California and uh, having just formed the company and uh, with with 
ideas and uh, patent applications and some patents granted already at that point. And uh, he came he, he came to more than Northern Virginia uh, just to work with the MIMS exchange because we were um, one of the few places where you could go to have uh, custom MIMS devices made. Um, the the particular device that uh, we were first contracted to make was called a heteroscopic turbine, um, which was uh, implemented uh, by the MEMS exchange, the MEMS engineers at the MEMS exchange um, in a uh, rather heroic fabrication uh, process um, because, and I, and I say that because uh, the heteroscopic turbine consisted of a, a wafer of silicon with um, microscopic structures, uh, blades, if you like, uh, created uh, on the outer periphery, on the very corner edge of the wafer all the way around. So uh, it was a, uh, it was no one had ever, I believe, had ever fabricated anything off to the edge of a silicon wafer like that, and they had to invent new new methods of uh, of doing it um, in order to cause that to happen. Uh, the heteroscopic turbine, although it was the fabrication moonshot project was completed, the testing of that device. Uh, never was completed because uh, the it it required to operate under the under the uh, theory that force physics had brought uh, to operate the heteroscopic turbine needed to needed to spin at a um, at a speed of a, a, about a hundred thousand um, rpms. Uh, so that the tip speeds uh, approach the speed of sound. Um, so it turned out that uh, that was really hard. To, that was really hard to do. Um, and and I uh, uh, I worked some on that myself. And uh, and uh, our ability to uh, to execute that was. Um, didn't succeed. Um, and also um, at the time the and all of that work was funded under an Army Reach Research Laboratory grant um, that was awarded to force physics. Uh, the research money from the Army um, uh, was redirected to internal projects into the two wars that were uh, in in progress at, at that point so we we kind of uh ran out of steam on the heteroscopic turbine project so that's that we consider that to be a, a project on the shelf um okay <clears throat> so shortly after this you you moved on to force physics as their cto that that was around 2013 i think yes um, that was, uh, I did that, we had built, um, 
um, earlier than that, while I was still working at the MEMS exchange, we had built a follow-on device uh, that was a MEMS scale device for forced physics. Um, Scott, having uh, learned uh, by direct experience how hard it is to spin a piece of silicon at such a high speed um, it, with uh, perfect control of the movement of it, um, uh, came up with the idea of how to uh, implement the same uh, physics idea, the, you know, the basis of the company in a device that did not move. So and that that was a, we call it the static device um, because of that distinction. Um, but the static device is really just a, 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 a large uh, die, 30 millimeters square, and it had uh, <clears throat> microchannels that went from one edge of the chip to the other, which is also kind of a weird uh, construction. Um, and the shape of the microchannels um, was uh, directed by Scott, uh, and, uh, and it's the shape of those microchannels that makes them um, do something with respect to cooling. Um, and, and that was, uh, that device was built and um, tested uh, very successfully. Um, and, uh, and it was, and it was, that was really, the success there was really the, uh, the basis of me um, uh, quitting my software development job and uh, leaving to go and work full time for force physics. So let's let's talk high level just for a second about the forest physics product. It's uh, effectively a heat exchanger, right? Uh, yes. So uh, it's a it's a it's a geometry. Uh, it's a range of geometries that are uh, exceptionally good at at moving kinetic energy from a solid into a, a gas. So it's a heat exchanger. And I've, I've seen this personally. And one of the things that struck me is how incredibly, uh, I, I'm going to say simple, I'm sure the development of it was not simple. But uh, <laughs> looking at it, I mean, there, there are no moving parts even in there, right? Right, no moving parts in the device itself. Now it does go into a system where uh, there, the system has to provide a pressure differential to move the gas, the air through the device. Um, so, so there's at least one moving part in the system. Um, sure. But the, yeah. But our device itself is uh, is a, is a is a non-moving, non-chemical, uh, you know, structure. Uh, that would typically be implemented uh, in a material uh, that has uh, some thermal conductivity um, to it. So we we typically use uh, aluminum um, as the material because it's cheaper than copper. Um, yeah, but we've we've used both. Yeah, it's it's a really cool looking product. Um, and and predominantly, it's used to cool uh, data data center computers. 
what kind of of efficiencies have you seen using your force physics heat exchanger to cool uh, data center computers versus more uh, more typical cooling technology, at least mm-hmm. in that industry? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe first I should tell you about how uh, describe what the norm in the industry is. The norm is, oh, yes, please. so there's a box, there's a CPU and other components perhaps, but primarily the CPU is the heat source. Um, the CPU has a, a heat sink on it and the air blows through the box with fans that are in the box and the air as it moves over the heat sink, some of the heat, the heat moves to the air um, and it goes out of the back of the box and into the the boxes are stacked in racks and that hot air is dumped into the interior of the facility, the building, um, and then really responsibility for getting the heat out of the building falls to another system, um, an air conditioner or a chiller plant, um, but a, a, a sequence of, uh, of movements of heat usually from one material to another involving compressors and, and pumps. Usually um, at, the, at, the, at the end of this uh, sequence of processes, uh, you, you have the heat rejection step where the, the heat that uh, originated in the servers um, gets uh, dumped out to the outside atmosphere and that's called the heat rejection step. Um, normally data centers, not always, but normally uh, for the heat rejection step, uh, they employ water. So they evaporate water in a cooling tower as a way of uh, assisting that heat rejection step. And that's the, the, the reason that uh, a lot of times at data centers, if you see one, um, they'll have water towers, a lot of water towers around and sometimes clouds of, uh, of, of, of water vapor uh, moving up into the air as, and, and carrying heat with them away from the data center. Um, the force physics approach really takes that the heat rejection step and uh, moves it uh, all the way into the server enclosure itself and into our heat exchanger. So what we do instead of uh, all of the complicated steps is we we take outside air and we bring it uh, filtered directly through the server enclosure and uh, it goes through our, our special heat exchanger, which is thermally in contact with a processor and, uh, and, it, and it picks up heat. It actually picks up, you know, all of the heat of the processor and it, and the output air is, is really hot um, as a result. Um, and actually it's, it's so hot um, at, uh, for example, 170 degrees Fahrenheit that uh, it's not really worth it to cool it down again with air conditioners or anything. So we just, um, we dump that hot air back out into the outside atmosphere directly. So okay. the advantage of this is we get rid of uh, 
all of that equipment that traditional data centers use for cooling the air before it goes into the racks. Um, and yeah, that right there is a huge savings. I mean, we're, we're not talking about, you know, some kind of small refrigeration system that might fit on your desktop. We're, we're talking about large industrial equipment that you've effectively eliminated, right? That's right. Uh, and it's, and it's, and it's on an incredible scale, actually, the uh, data centers of, of the world um, are currently and have been for a long time being built at, at a, really as fast as the world can do it. Um, and, uh, and they're building all of these systems, uh, including them, what they call the mechanical systems for cooling the air down that goes into the racks. And, uh, and we're going to, we're going to take that off the bill of materials for data centers. Amazing. And, and will your heat exchanger perform as efficiently as these, these large, heavily engineered uh, cooling systems that have historically been used? Yeah. yeah. The incredible uh, thing is we're, we're, our technology, the system that uses our technology, the amount of energy that's required to move heat from the processor out of the building um, averages only 2% of the heat load in uh, here in the Arizona climate. Um, that's a really low amount of energy for cooling. In comparison, um, a, a, a typical data center here in Phoenix uh, will will typically use at least forty percent of the heat load uh, for the cooling system's additional energy. So uh, so we reduce the amount of energy that's required for the cooling system by uh, more than ninety percent uh, from its from its current. And what's more, um, we with our system, we get rid of the need for server fans. Um, and people may not realize it, but the fans that are inside electronics equipment enclosures uh, uh, use a, their own energy. And not only do they use their own energy, they, they actually add to the heat load of the whole building and to the air conditioners that are there. So mm. when, you, when you get rid of server fans, um, you, you eliminate a lot of costs and you um, reduce energy usage by, um, by a significant amount more. Um, so the number we usually use is 8% uh, as, a, as a comparable, but uh, in some systems, uh, server fans use a lot more energy than that. So data center computers is the, the primary market that uh, Force Physics is focusing on right now. Are there other applications beyond data center computers that your technology can be used for? Yes. Um, you know, uh, engineers know that almost all machines uh, that, that operate using energy are in some sense limited in their performance 
by their ability to uh, remove the heat that they inevitably generate. Um, and so all of those machines will benefit and have their performance ranges extended uh, by having cooling solutions that are more effective uh, than what they're using today. Um, at Force Physics, we've, uh, when we have talked to people about this technology over the years, um, uh, people typically learn about this and they're very, you know, excited by the prospect of it and they start thinking of hundreds of other things that this could be applied to. Typically, they lose a little bit of sleep um, uh, because this is such an unusual, you know, discovery. And uh, and and so they're, they're just a world of things, you know, from engines to... Uh, to lasers, to uh, the solar systems. Um, really, it's just, there's just a, a very long list of potential applications. And we've really made a, we've had to kind of work to stay focused on one thing. Um, and and we've, we've been really good at that. And uh, in our, in our intent is to uh, deliver the value of this discovery to the data center market where um, it's so valuable that uh, that will will uh, will be a thriving business uh, delivering that value um, and then uh, once that that foothold is clearly established uh, then we'll um, we'll develop applications for other markets so we'll just start picking off other markets one after the other. That's really impressive that, that your team has been able to stay so laser focused on the data center market. Um, being a business owner myself, I know how easy it is to get distracted by shiny objects, so to speak. And it, it sounds like there could be a lot of shiny ab objects for this technology. Um, but just looking at the data center market for now, what what are the next hurdles or challenges that your company has to overcome before you just blow this technology up and it's it's everywhere worldwide everyone's using it the challenge has been over the last year really the last challenge so we have we have energy efficiency we have low cost we you know we have uh really it's a slam dunk argument except for one thing and that is uh the form factor that we were building in what uh, we call the dual force conductor um, is a 20 inch long by four and a quarter inch wide by one and a half inch thick rectangular tube of aluminum that has the patented heating elements built inside it. Um, we assumed that our customers would build the electronics to fit the cooling solution um, because of the uh, incredible advantages that it offers. Um, but uh, that is uh, harder than we uh, uh, expected. Uh, and it's certainly something that can be done. But what, what, we've, what we've really done is responded to customer 
uh, feedback, uh, customers would say, you know, this is clearly game changing, world changing technology. Um, at the moment, I have these servers I need to to uh, cool, and they, uh, because of the way they're uh, put together, uh, they don't really fit your product, the dual force conductor. So, uh, so we listened to that, and, and what we've done really in the past uh, two months is developed a new form factor that does adapt to any motherboard. So um, we call it a microconductor, and the the microconductor is is we're really taking the same blades that we have the manufacturing processes for, and we're packaging them in smaller units that essentially replace the heat sinks that are on motherboards. And uh, and this means that all of the advantages of force physics technology, the tremendous energy savings that are available, are really for the first time uh, immediately applicable to really any motherboard and honestly pretty much any kind of electronics. Um, so we really think that's the last hurdle. Um, and so we're, we're, we're building out the, the prototype systems that, that demonstrate that. And um, it's pretty clear to us that uh, uh, from the initial feedback we have from customer conversations is that this, this is this is the uh, the advancement that will really make this go. So the so the challenge for us will be um, uh, putting together the enclosures and the and the sort of mechanical structures that put these things together for for you know to meet uh, customer needs um, and to uh, ramp up our production processes so that we can uh, be ready to serve the needs of large volume customers. Um, so we're really expecting hyperscale customers. Um, so the large data center companies to be um, um, the leaders in this. That is super exciting. I mean, you've solved all the big issues now. It sounds like you're about to be out to the races a year from now. Force Physics could be a very different company, not different in you know technology, but different in size and scale. Uh, yes, it will be. Um, so certainly we'll, we'll be uh, addressing the needs of, of, a, of a fast growing group of customers um, and, uh, and engaging uh, uh, a range of contract manufacturers to deliver, um, to build the things that those customers needs. Um, and uh, and and uh, so yeah, so it's gonna be, it, it's gonna be a um, it's gonna be a, a rapid change um, for our company, which has been um, you know small this whole time. And uh, but we've been we spent a long time getting ready for this moment, so that um, it's. I bet you have. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That's very exciting. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron.
Hey, Aaron, uh, your company might be able to help our company too, because we'll, we'll probably have a lot of uh, design work to do. So just let me oh. know. We'd, we'd be happy to support that. Yeah, for sure. Thank, thank you for the plug there. That's right. Pipeline design and engineering. Uh, um, David, do you, do you work with the engineers directly or, or is your role, you know, kind of far separated from the day-to-day -day engineering? Well, we're a small team, so everybody works with everybody at our company. Um, well, there, there are, uh, uh, Darren Kessner is our director of manufacturing and Carl Ito is, is our lead designer. And it, it's really uh, the, the three of us that work together on, uh, on concept and implementation. Um, and and, uh, and I, most of my work is really at, at more conceptual um, as I'm talking to customers and uh, trying to make sure that uh, what we build is is what they want. Okay. Well, you you may or may not have uh, answer you feel is good for this question, but I'm I'm going to ask it anyway, and you can just let me know if you feel like you can <laughs> respond to this. Uh, let's let's pretend that I am one of the the staff engineers. You know, I'm on the front line. I'm the one that's doing the day to day engineering work, driving the CAD box. Because a lot of our listeners. Uh, that's who they are, these engineers. So if I'm one of these engineers who really wants to impress my boss and, and make his or her life easy, from your standpoint, what are a few things that, that I can do? I think the important thing is to, uh, to communicate well um, and frequently. Um, I think uh, it's... It's better, and this is something I learned in the software world from the, uh, the, the development methodology called extreme programming, which is now called agile programming. I mean, so, they're, so the way people program now was a new thing back then. And uh, one of the key elements of that is having uh, a uh, short iteration cycles and a, uh, and a in a close coupling, you might say, between the, uh, the customer or the customer representative and the, uh, and the implementers um, so that to, to make sure that uh, the, uh, the business value, the customer needs are really um, constantly uh, connected to uh, the implementation. So I, I, so my advice for uh, people doing drawings is is to uh, is to look up from your computer frequently and talk to people. Excellent <laughs> advice. Very very good advice. Thank you for that. I just have, I have one more question for you. Um, you mentioned that the the original design of your uh, Joule Force compressor uh, had to what? be changed. Okay, stop. It's conductor. I got to get you there. Uh, I'm sorry. Okay. Conductor. Thank All you right. for correcting me. <laughs> conductor. I should just say JFC so I don't sound dumb. Okay. But the, the dual force conductor, um, uh, you had to change the, the form factor. And you mentioned that, uh, I think what you said was about two months. You turned that around. That's an impressively short amount of time to repackage a product can, can you share any of the best practices or strategies that your team has used to kind of accelerate that, that uh, development process? 
Um, I think, yes, uh, we, we did that pretty fast, but, uh, the, the thing that helped was that the design elements, uh, and even, even the, the primary components are the, the fins, the blade structure, um, were the same in these two, in these two, uh, embodiments, let's say, of the same invention. So, it really didn't take that much uh so so it wasn't that that huge of a leap to go from one to the other i i would say so um i see i don't think we have any special insight about going fast you know when you're when you're doing things that require a lot of detail as i know you you're familiar with um you know there's there's some there's always some tedious stuff that has to get done um and i'm afraid we don't have any special magic for that <laughs> well our our uh, engineering manager michael um he likes to say if you need to go fast slow down and i i think that's a really good piece of advice yeah and uh you know that's something that uh in the software world uh you know people uh that was really part of the problem that that the the uh, development methodology called extreme programming that I mentioned uh, was trying to address was the, uh, the, 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 uh, the impedance mismatch between what can be done and, and, and uh, what's desired. Um, and it really makes things worse. So in a software development team, uh, you know, you might, add more people to the process and actually slow it down significantly. And I'm sure that's the same in any type of engineering teamwork. Yeah. Yeah. Well, David, um, if, if, uh, folks listening to this want to get a, a hold of you or force physics and, um, learn more about your technology, what's the best way to get a hold of, of you and your company? Well, if they were, if they remember the name Force Physics, they can just Google that in the website, and and there's uh, some email addresses on there you can send email to. Um, I'm certain I'm, I am always happy to hear from people uh, there or on LinkedIn, and um, and uh, or directly by email or by phone. I, I mean I I uh, I. I get a lot of inquiries uh, from different directions and, and I enjoy them. So um, try and contact Great. me directly. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, David, for sharing about your past, your experience and the force physics technology. It's been super interesting. Uh, I am really excited to see where these heat exchangers go um what kind of success they see over the next year two three um as i'm sure you are as well but but thank you for uh spending your time with us today and and being on the being an engineer podcast thanks very much here this has been fun talking i'm aaron monker founder of pipeline design and engineering if you liked what you heard today please leave us a positive review it really helps other people find the show 
To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening.